All right, go ahead and be seated. Thank you for joining us online as well. We're glad that you're here. And uh, thank you for being here on campus as well. So we're going to continue in our series in Colossians. We find ourselves in chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 28. And I hope you are opening Colossians every week and, and just seeing what God has for you. So let's start with the idea of what God has done for you. That's where we're going to start today. And then where we're going to go with that is then we're going to talk about our response to that or our responsibility. What is my responsibility as someone who believes in Jesus? What now does God want for me? What, is he, what does he desire for my life? So we're going to look at that. So let's start in verse 21. And verse 21 is describing uh, exactly what God has done for us in this amazing grace walk that we have. Verse 21 says, you were once far away from God. Amen? That was pretty weak. You were once far away from God, and I'm going to add a little note here, no exceptions. All right? So that means, listen to me carefully, so my goal today is to try to offend everybody here, so I'm going to, tr I'm going to work at it. I'm just kidding. Just come on, lighten up here. So let's start with those of you that have been raised in the church. I want you to think about this, and I want you to know something. You were not born at church. You were not born as a saint. You were born a sinner. You were born in Adam's race, and you were apart from God. You have not, I've, I hear people all the time tell me, well, I've always had God in my life. That is not true. It's not true. There was a point in time in your life where you had to be born again because nobody goes to heaven without being born again the second time. So listen to it carefully. You were once far away from God. You were his enemies. Oh, he goes even further. Not only were you far away from God, but the Bible says about me and you is that he says that we were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Let that soak in. That's who we, that's who we were. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. So let's start with who we were and then we'll move to who we are. So this is what it says. First of all, you were far from God. No exceptions, right? We already discussed that. You were far from God. And here's the hard part. Here's the hard thing for us to swallow. We were born as God's enemies. But God didn't let that stop him from being in relationship to us. Uh, and I'm just going to simply say this. You cannot understand the good news until you understand the bad news. You got that? We have to understand the bad news. Enemies, apart from God, that's where we started with God. And now, because of his great mercy, let's look at what he has done for us. First of all, the scripture here says, he has reconciled you to himself. He has brought you to himself into his presence. And he has granted you eternal holiness. Not a single fault. God doesn't now, now that you believe in Jesus, and I hope you do, because that's your responsibility is to believe on him uh, whom God has sent. But when you believe on Jesus, now you stand reconciled to God. You stand blameless before his throne. You stand in his presence 24-7. You have access to his throne. We're invited to his throne of grace that we might obtain mercy. We're invited to pray, to talk to him. We're invited to live a life that is blameless and holy. And the fact is that's already inferred upon us. That's already conferred on us. The fact is, is that 
God now looks at you and me as children of God, as people who have been born again, he looks at us in a really powerful way and that he sees no sin because he always sees us connected to Jesus. When he sees you, he sees Jesus. So therefore, you are without fault. Now, that exchange doesn't sound very fair to God, right? You know, he, he sacrificed everything, we gained everything. That exchange there is a, that's called the grace of God, and it is unfair to God, but it's, it, he loves us with this amazing love, and that's his plan for us. And so I just want to say it is amazing when you begin to think about what God has done for you. Now, comes the hard part. So what would God want from me now that I know this? I was alienated from God. I was his enemy. And now I've been reconciled and I'm blameless before his throne. Now what does God want from my life on a 24-7 basis? There's no such thing as part-time here, okay? We only have full-time Christians. So what would God want from me? my responsibilities. The first thing that I see, and we're going to show you this as we walk through the text, the first thing that I want, us, I want you to notice with me is that he desires for us to stand in the truth. He's to stand in the truth. I hear people all the time talk about, well, this is my truth. And uh, I, hear, I hear it probably three or four times a day. And so smile at me. Your truth may be a lie. Okay? Your truth may be completely deceived. You may be blinded to the reality. So my job is to stand in the, the truth. Every day I stand in the truth. And so verse 23a, this is what it says, but you must continue to believe in this truth and stand firmly in it. Stop there. You see that? My responsibility, this is a command, but you must continue to believe in this truth that God reconciled you, that God has made you blameless, and now you're to stand in that truth. Don't drift away from the assurance that you have received when you heard the good news. And so the reason that Paul would write this is because you and I have a propensity to drift, right? We have a, you know, if left to our own devices, you and I will drift away. That's why we need to be in church. That's why we need to be with other believers because we're drifters. We, we find ourselves moving away from the truth, not moving towards it. And then pain happens in our life and then we move back to the truth. That's kind of a cycle that many of us are in on a regular basis. But what Paul is saying here is that what I need to learn how to do is respond to the grace of God. And by responding to the grace of God, I'm supposed to live in the truth. Stand in the truth. Christian courage is the willingness to say and do the right thing regardless of what earthly cost there is because God promises to be with you. I stand in the truth even though I know when I stand in the truth it's going to be costly for my life. You all get that? They crucified Jesus because he spoke the truth. So when I stand in the truth firmly, I have to understand that some people will love me and some people hate me. Courage is indispensable for both spreading and preserving the truth of Christ. It is. You have to have courage. And that doesn't mean that you can't have doubt from time to time. But the fact is, is that courage exists inside the, pro the concept of doubt. So Jesus promised that spreading the gospel would meet resistance. I have to stand in the truth. Jesus said... They will deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. 
So there is resistance. That's talking at the end of the age primarily. But the reality is in the, in the culture that you and I live, when you and I stand in the truth, when we don't compromise, we don't back down from the truth, the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of his work on the cross, when we stand in that truth, there will always be a pushback from us and people will talk behind our backs. They'll call us names. They will call us Jesus freaks, They'll, whatever it is. And you've got to be willing to say, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. And so I want to just give you an example from history of someone who lived this out in a way that I think is amazing. And it's, many of our young people have never heard this woman's name. Her name is Corrie Ten Boom. How many of you have actually heard of Corrie's, Corrie's name before? Half of you probably have. Well, let me tell you Corrie's story uh, because it is powerful. When Corrie was arrested for hiding Jews in her home uh, during the Nazi occupation of Holland, she begged God not to, not, to, not to be allowed to be sent to one of the camps that was a death camp. But within a few weeks, she was sent to one where Jews and political prisoners were being routinely gassed. That's what she begged God, please don't send me there. Yet this brave woman accepted this as God's plan, taught millions along the way by her example of suffering, that something is required if I'm going to do God's will. There are some times that God asked me to suffer for the sake of the kingdom. Corey said in her book, The Hiding Place, and by the way, if you've never read The Hiding Place, this is a book that should be on every, in every Christian library. It should be in your home. This book, you should go out on the internet, you should get this book, and you should read it because this is an inspirational, powerful story, and I'm just giving you the Reader's Digest version here, but this is what she writes in her book. She says, In the German camp, with all its horror, I found many prisoners who had never heard Jesus Christ's name. If God had not used my sister Betsy and me to bring them to him, they would have never heard of him. She embraced her suffering. She embraced what she begged God, please don't send me there. But when he did, she made the most of that opportunity and she literally won many, many, many people to Christ. And through her book later that was published in 1971, I'm telling you, many people have come to Christ. She's a standout in history of someone who lives and stands in the truth, stands in the truth. So let me give you a contemporary story of someone who I believe stands in the truth. Have you ever heard of a guy by the name of Levi Lusco? And uh, he's written uh, some really good books. He's a preacher and an author from Montana. Uh, when a few years back, he, his five-year-old daughter had severe asthma. And it was Christmas time. They were, they were around decorating and wrapping packages and getting ready for, for Christmas. When all of a sudden she had an asthma attack, her daughter, five-year-old daughter, and uh, literally they called the ambulance. It was a severe attack, and she died in Levi's arms before the ambulance could get there. And you would think, you know, here's a preacher. He's a, you know, a Christian guy. You would think that this would be something that you say, God, why would you let that happen? Why would you do that, God? You could have stopped this, God. That's how normal people would have thought. That, you know, and, and unbelievers would use that as an example. Of, See, I told you that God wasn't good. But that's not Levi's response to the circumstance. In spite, of, in spite of what happened, he continued to walk with Jesus, wrote a book called Through the Eyes of a Lion that has helped thousands, maybe even millions of people walk through similar circumstances. He's never denied the faith. He's never backed down from God. He has, st he has stood in truth. 
That's what God calls you and I. My responsibility before God, based on what Christ has done for me, based on the reality of the grace of God, what God wants me to do is stand in capital T truth. Never back down, never apologize for it, never try to find a way to compromise it, never try to make it smooth for people. It is the truth. Jesus died for you as a sinner. You were apart from God. You were separated from God, and Christ needed to die for you. That is a harsh message, but it is truth. The second responsibility that I have is to proclaim this good news. Verse 23 says, the good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. So when you walk over that when you walk over that line and accept Christ as your Savior, you're stepping into a responsibility. So look at me when I say this to you. You're stepping into a responsibility to proclaim the good news of Jesus to every creature. That's the command. That's the job description for the person who is a child of God. That's our job description. The good news is that Christ is in us and it's the hope of glory. Verse 26 and 27. So let me just get a running start. Paul says, I have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I want to I hone in on that phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory, because that really is an important phrase. For too long, we've called unbelievers, and I've been guilty of this too, we've called unbelievers to invite Jesus into their life. Sounds like a good thing, right? But I want you to think about something deeper. Jesus doesn't want to be in your life. Your life's a wreck. Do I get an amen to that? Jesus calls you into his life. That's so much deeper. That's so much more powerful. Jesus calls you into his life. And when he calls you into his life, the reality is, is that his life is not purposeless, it's not boring, it's not static, it's wild, it's exhilarating, it's unpredictable. It is amazing. This Christ life is amazing. So don't just invite Jesus to join your life. Join him in his life. That's the message. That's Christ in us the hope of glory. And the reason Christ is in you is because you have joined him in his life. So if you've joined him in his life, then everything about you is Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So let me, let me see if we can go just a bit further in describing this. So there are two superheroes, fictional characters. Consider these two superheroes, Batman and Spider-Man, okay, for just a minute. Because they kind of exemplify some things. First of all, Batman is a rich and strong man with lots of cool toys, right? That's who, he, that's who he is. His superpowers stem from his external possessions. That's where his superpowers come from. On the other side of the coin, there's this super a power by the name of Spider-Man, and he has a few accessories as well, but he is a superhero because of the spider powers that he obtained when he was bitten by this radioactive spider. Remember the story? And now he has been changed. He has a new power accessible to him within him. That's the Christ story. 
Christ in you makes more, is really the Spider-Man story as opposed to the Batman story. The truth is, it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And when Christ is in you, there's all sorts of power. The third responsibility is rejoice in suffering for the gospel. Verse 23, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. So suffering in the Christian life is something that, and I'm not talking about suffering because you have a disease or that you have mental torment or whatever circumstance are in your life. I'm not talking about that kind of suffering. I'm talking about the kind of suffering that happens because you name Jesus. So we're not to shy away from that. We are not to look for it by any means, but we're certainly not to shy away from it. And here's what I've discovered. God always opened doors during suffering. When I'm suffering for him, God opens doors. So I want to tell you a story from the Bible that you probably don't know. You probably know half of it. Some of you might know it all, but I, I doubt if very few people do. So here's what I want you to think about. James the Apostle, James and John, he was John's brother, James the Apostle. He was uh, the first apostle to suffer martyrdom. And so let me tell you the story. Uh, we discover that martyrdom in the book of Acts. And, uh, you know, it does, there's just one sentence that tells us about James's death. But history records the whole story. So I want to tell you the whole story about James's death. The reason James was arrested and charged was because there was a man who had an issue with Christianity. And so he brought James to the tribunal, accused him of being a, one of those insurrectionists, one of those Christ followers. Christianity in that time was against the law. So he brought him before the tribunal. James was convicted of this insurrection. And, and on the way to the crucifixion, his accuser, his accuser walked with him. And when he saw James's response to his impending death, he converted right on the spot. His accuser converted right on the spot. When they got to the place of execution, he begged James forgiveness. And James granted it, kissed him, said, peace be to you. And on that day, 36 AD, two people died, the accuser and James. It's a powerful story. Here's a person who understands that suffering is a part of the gospel. But here is a, here's an opportunity. James could have felt sorry for himself. James could have walked down the path and go, you know, I'm going to die here in a minute. But James didn't do that. He continued to live in his Christ-like fashion. And the bottom line is that God opened a door and he reached out and touched another man who saved him for all eternity. Won't, be, won't it be neat in heaven when you and I get to meet this guy who was James' accuser and got saved? Powerful story. The fourth thing that I want you to see, the fourth responsibility, and this is where you are going to have to Take a deep breath. Everything else, you know, kind of, oh, I kind of expected that. Here's what you need to also understand. The fourth responsibility is to serve the church. 
to use your gifts and talents and abilities and your energies to serve the church for which Christ died. So let me show you this before I move on. Paul said, God has given me the responsibility, there's that word, of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. I want you to see the phrase, by serving his church. Some, some versions say the, his body, which is his church. Serve with whatever gifts and talents God has given you. The, life of, the lie of the evil one that he wants to spread into your life is simply this. The lie of the evil one is that this doesn't matter, that you don't matter, that your time doesn't matter. So here is what we've re relegated the church to be. We've relegated the church to be a place that I come to and not a place that I serve. And when people speak of the church, oftentimes this is how they speak, it, speak of it to me. They say, oh, I attend your church. And I'm going, I don't think I died for the church. I don't think I shed my blood to purchase your redemption. But I know that Jesus did. And Jesus placed you into the church. And now your responsibility is to serve the church. It's so good. And yet, this is what statistics say. Of the thousands of people that come to Grace Church, either online or in person, 20% serve the church. And I want to know where the other 80% is. It's your responsibility to find your gifts and talents and figure it out and say, you know what, I don't know what I can do, but I know God will take me on a journey and show me exactly what I can do. And my goal is to serve the church. My responsibility as a child of God is to love his body, to serve his body, and not stand from afar and just be an attender. We live in an age where we're spectators right? We live in an age where we've been conditioned to spectate. You know, just sit in the stands and criticize coaches and players and said, man, what is he thinking? That's how we're, what's what we're conditioned to do. So what do we do in church? The same thing. We sit around and we go, if I was the pastor, And I'm going, you can have my job any day, okay? I'm just saying. Well, we play the game, if I were the pastor, this is what I would have done. Why did he hire so-and-so? And I'm going, I don't know. <laughs> but we're great at criticizing. We're not great at serving. And what you bleed for, you learn to love. What you don't bleed for, you learn to criticize. What you're committed to, you're, it's easy to just uh, flee when a wolf comes. If you're not committed. But if you're committed, you stand, you stand and do whatever it takes. And here's the question that I want you to think about. If Jesus came back today and he took every single one of us out of this auditorium or online took us out home. We're, G we're Jesus now. 
except for you. You're left. You're left. Now, let me ask you this question. This is just hypothetical. I'm not speaking of when the rapture happens, so don't fill, you know, fill in any blanks. I'm just saying, if you're the only one left in the city of Reno, does the church survive? Does it survive because of you? Because of what you're doing? I know Jesus is the head of the church. I'm asking about your responsibility now because that's what he gave to us when he left this planet. So step into your responsibilities. Figure out what they are, whatever you can do, whatever you can contribute. And what if we got that 20% up to 80%? I'm just figuring out where I'm supposed to be serving. What if we got that 20% up to 80%? What would the church look like then? So smile at me. I know I've stepped on a lot of toes here, but if you're one of those 80% that just attends church but doesn't serve in the church, God's got more for you. He really does. And if you don't discover that, you'll live a lackluster, hopeless life and then die. And people get up and say nice things about you, but you'll know the truth. Serve the church. And don't be ashamed of it. I don't apologize for Christ's church. He died for it. Make sense? So let me ask you this. Eyes up. At me. Online. Look at me. What are you going to do with what I just said? What are you going to do? Because... Now you know the truth. Your responsibility is to serve all the days of your life. Not out of duty, out of gratitude. Right? Out of gratitude. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your grace in our life. And may your spirit, God, do an amazing work of grace in each one of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.